Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, if you will. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 contain what we often refer to in the Bible as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching on the Mount of Olives, and a tremendous instruction in this sermon. Much of it is very practical, and uh, the part that we want to look at this morning is indeed that, Matthew chapter 5, and uh, just want to focus on a couple of verses starting in verse 13. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. The Bible says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now in these four verses, the Lord uses two metaphors or illustrations to describe us as Christians. He calls us salt and He calls us light. Now when the Lord tells us that we're to be light... That's pretty easy to understand because Jesus is the light of the world, right? Uh, just as um, our physical sun out there provides light for this world, so the Lord Jesus Christ, the S-O-N, provides light uh, to those in darkness of sin. And so Jesus came to be light. Remember John the Baptist, he said, I'm not that light, but I came to bear witness of that light. That was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. What the world needs today is Jesus Christ. But us, we're like John, we're like the moon, we're a reflection of the light. When you go out at night, the moon is out. Well, the moon is not a light source. It doesn't have light in itself. It's merely a reflection of the greater light. And so you and I are like that moon. We're a reflection of Jesus Christ to this dark world. And God wants us to be that light. Everywhere we go, we need to let people know that, that we belong to Jesus Christ and we're living for Him. We're a reflection of that light. But in verse 13, the Lord said, you're the salt of the earth. Now, why would the Lord call us salt? Why would He use that illustration or why would He use that metaphor to describe us? We're the salt of the earth. When we think about salt, the first thing that probably comes to our mind is something we have on our kitchen table something we use when we eat. Uh, I have managed to eat a lot of different foods as long as there was a salt shaker nearby. I was in Perth, Australia years ago, and, and uh, the missionary, he said one night, he said, Brother Gatch, there's a family in our church. They'd like to have you over for a meal. I said, well, I'll be okay. He said, uh, I got to warn you, though. He said, uh, these folks are aboriginals. And he said, here in Australia, the aboriginal people have some rights and privileges that the rest of us don't have. And he said one of those is they're allowed under law to shoot the kangaroos and eat them. Well, now, in the city of Perth on Western Australia, they're, they're, the, the kangaroos are everywhere. You see them in the city parks. They hop across the road. you got to be careful not to run them over. I mean, they're everywhere. And so I had seen them, but I hadn't thought about eating any of them. I walked into that house and came in the front door, and, she, and the lady had a table set right there in the first room you walked into, and uh, right in the middle of the table was a big roasting pan, and inside, a kangaroo. 
Now, the first thing I looked for was that salt shaker. I thought, as long as it's within reach, I'll be okay. And I managed to, to eat some kangaroo. It really wasn't that bad. Uh, but, but salt, it, it seasons our food, doesn't it? It makes it taste better. Does your life make God taste better to a world that's lost its appetite for truth? I, I don't know if you've noticed it, but the world is getting less and less religious. They're, they're getting less and less interested in God. The fastest growing religion in America today is no religion. Uh, people uh, have lost interest in church. They've lost their appetite for God. They're not interested in spiritual things. Well, God said, you're the salt of the earth. You're supposed to make truth. You're supposed to make God. You're supposed to make Christ taste better to a world that's losing its appetite for those things. But salt also creates thirst. There are certain foods, if you eat them, it's hard to eat very long without taking a drink of something. If you eat a bag of pretzels, it's hard not to drink something somewhere along the way, or a bag of potato chips, or certain meats are salty, like bacon or ham or something like that. You almost have to drink something along the way. Salt creates thirst. When I was a boy growing up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin, my dad would buy these salt blocks. They were about 12-inch square, and they're solid salt. And uh, he'd take those in the summertime and put them out in the pasture, and the cows, the, the milk cows, they would come along, and with their big old giant tongues, they would start licking on those salt blocks. And boy, within a couple weeks, they'd lick them down to nothing. We'd have to put another one out there. And I remember as a little boy asking my dad, Dad, why do we do that? And he said, well, in the summertime, the cows, uh, they get dehydrated, just like you and I do, because it's warm. And uh, when they get dehydrated, they get, they get sick, they, they're not healthy, and they don't give as much milk, and we make our money from the milk. And so we want them to be healthy, so we want them to drink a lot of water in the summertime to stay hydrated. So we put the salt out there because it tastes good to them. They lick on it, and it makes them thirsty, and they go drink more water. They're healthier. We make more money. Ah, makes sense, right? Salt creates thirst. Does your life create thirst in those that are without Christ. When we go through a difficulty or a trial, we would say, do we go through it the same way the world does? Do we get angry, bitter, frustrated? If we do, we're not creating any thirst in those that don't know God. They think, well, they're just like me. They go to church, but they're just like me when trouble comes. They're just like me when they go through a hard time. You see, our life is to create some thirst. We ought to be different. We're to be a peculiar people. But then salt also is an irritant. Have you ever gotten salt in a, in a scratch? You ever, you ever maybe scratched your arm and then your perspiration kind of got in there? And, oh, it's kind of irritating. In fact, we even use that in a negative way, don't we? We say, I'm going to rub a little salt in their wound. You ever said that? Somebody treats you wrong, ah, I'm going to rub a little salt in their wound. And we mean that in a negative way. We're going to make them hurt a little bit. Salt is an irritant. Again, does our life cause some irritation to those who are living contrary to God? Listen, when somebody, when somebody uses God's name in vain, they ought to realize that that didn't, that didn't go over well with us. I'm not saying we need to be rude or, or we need to jump all over people, but, but people ought to know that we're not going to stand around the water cooler at work and listen to a dirty joke. 
We're not going to put up with that. We're, we're not going to put up with something that is contrary to our faith. And our, our, our life ought to be an irritant to those who are living contrary to God. But the primary use of salt in this context when Jesus was speaking here was salt was a preservative. In other words, they didn't have refrigerators or freezers like we would have them today where we would put some leftovers in there or some food in there we buy at the store, we put it in there until we're ready to use it. It keeps it cool, it keeps it fresh. They didn't have that. So in order to preserve their food, especially their meat, they would soak it in these salt vats and it would become saturated with salt, which would preserve that food for a longer period of time. Does our life preserve the Word of God? Are we hiding any of it in our heart so we can pass it on to the next generation? Christianity is only one generation away from being extinct. And we're to pass that on to the next generation, but we can't pass on something we don't possess. The things that you've heard, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. The way Christianity propagates is for you and I as adults to pass it on to our children and their children to their children and so on. Are we doing that? Are we preserving the truth? So Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. Boy, that has a lot of ramification. That has a lot of application to our life. But Jesus said, if the salt have lost its savor, now, if you study salt, salt is made up of two things. I don't know if you remember chemistry class or not. I don't remember a lot about chemistry class. I remember the girl that sat next to me. But other than that, I, I don't remember a lot about chemistry class. But I do remember in the front of the class, they had this big chart. In fact, it covered the whole wall of the front of that classroom. And it had all these formulas that we had to memorize. Uh, I remember water. H2O. Remember that? You know, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. That's what makes up water, H2O. Salt is two elements, sodium and chloride. One part sodium, one part chloride. If you study salt, that's all it is. The composition of salt is basically just two things, sodium and chloride. In fact, Science tells us that if you take salt, and no matter what you do to it, it never changes in its composition. For example, you can freeze salt, but it's still just sodium chloride. Nothing changes about it, even in its frozen condition. You can boil salt. You can liquefy salt. But again, if you study it, it's still just sodium chloride. Nothing changes in the composition. You can crush salt but it's still just sodium chloride. No matter what you do to salt, it remains sodium chloride in its composition. You know, I, I find that interesting. No matter what happens in our life, we're still saved. Right? You can't lose your salvation. Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The Father that gave them me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So once we're saved... Once we trust Christ as Savior, we are saved eternally. Nothing can change that. Now, the devil can try to freeze you out of some relationships. Have you noticed that when you get saved, some people want nothing to do with you anymore? You start living for God, and your neighbors are a little, you know, they're a little, little uh, I don't know, I don't want to talk to you today. Uh, sometimes people kind of freeze us out of some relationships. But you know what? We're still saved. 
sometimes the devil turns the heat up. We go through some difficulties, and boy, he puts some, some obstacles and some things in our path, and we're, boy, we're having to fight through some things in our life, and, and yet we're still saved. Sometimes, boy, there's some crushing going on in our life. The burdens, the difficulties become heavy. The trials, the burdens, they get heavy, and we feel like we're, we're at our end, yet we're still saved. So salt is always salt. But Jesus said, if the salt have lost its savor. So if salt never changes in its composition, what causes it to lose its savor? Have you ever tasted salt that wasn't salty? Have you ever ever gone to put some salt on your food? You kind of shook the salt shaker and it kind of rattled around in there like a bunch of BBs. And, And you thought, what in the world? It's not even coming out. And so you kind of twisted the lid and it all kind of crunched, you know, as you turned the lid. And, and, you, and you looked in there, it was all kind of crystallized and maybe you tasted it and it was like, there's no taste, it's, it's bland. What happened? The salt lost its savor. It lost its saltiness. So if, if salt, no matter what you do to it, is still sodium chloride, how does salt lose its savor? Well, again, back to science class. You know you're going to have to go to school on Sunday, but here we are. Salt only loses its savor one way, through contamination. When something else gets into the elements of sodium chloride, the salt loses its savor. Now, we could end Sunday school right there, couldn't we? That's convicting. How do we lose our savor as a Christian when contamination enters our life? Now, I suppose we could talk about a lot of contaminants this morning that could cause our salt to lose saltiness, but let's think of three. First one is pretty obvious. Sin. When sin gets into our life, we're going to lose our effectiveness for Jesus Christ. We're, we're going to lose our saltiness. We're going, we're going to lose our impact. I, I used this verse yesterday with the young people. The psalmist said in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Do we realize that when sin gets into our life, the Lord's not even listening to our prayers? And as I said to the young people yesterday, if the Lord's not listening, do you suppose our neighbors are going to listen to us? You suppose people at work are going to listen to us? You suppose the kids we play with at school are going to listen to our testimony if, if, if the Lord's not even listening? See, sin is a contaminant in our life. Now, we're surrounded in a culture by sin. We're, we're in an evil day. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. We, we live in a culture that is sinful. So we're in the world, but God says we're not to be of the world We're to be a testimony to the world. So we're to keep our salt from that contamination of sin. Aren't you glad that when sin does get into our life, there's a way to get it out? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know about you, but that's kind of a daily project for me. 
I mean, every day there's some sin that gets into my life. It might be an attitude. It might be a a heart condition. It might be something outward, something I said or something I did. But every day I'm thankful that I can go to God and say, Lord, I agree with you. That was wrong. I can take God's side on that matter and say, Lord, I was wrong. I, I need forgiveness. And I'm glad that God is a God who delights in mercy. He's a God that delights in forgiving us. If iniquity be in thine hand, Job said, put it far from thee. In other words, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord for he'll have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. There is no reason for us as God's people to continue to live our life in sinful practice. There's no reason to keep sin in our life. When we can get it right, we can get it confessed, and we can be forgiven. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh it shall have mercy. So sin is a contaminant that weakens our effectiveness as a Christian. It contaminates our soul. But let's think of another one, the contaminant of self. You know, self is our biggest problem. Most of our problems are self-inflicted. D.L. Moody used to say, the man I fear the most is the one who walks underneath this hat. (laughs) When Abraham Lincoln was running for president, they asked him on the campaign trail one day, they said, do you fear any of your your opponents? And he said, yes, one. And they were surprised because he was doing well in the the campaign. And they, they said, who do you fear? He said, I fear a man named Lincoln. He said, if I'm defeated, I'll be defeated by Lincoln. You know, that's, that's pretty sound thinking, isn't it? Because our self often gets in the way of us doing what God wants us to do. I, I was reading in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 one day, and I, I read the first verse, this know also in the last days, perilous times shall come. And I thought, boy, these must be those days because they seem kind of perilous to me. Now, the word perilous there in 2 Timothy 3.1, it means unraveled. Does that sound like your, your city? Does that sound like your nation? Well, I don't know about you, but I, I watch the news for about five minutes, and I think it's all unraveling, right? Politically, I mean, economically, religiously, morally, it just seems like everything, nothing has any firm foundation. It's just, it's just unraveled. It's coming apart. And people's lives, you talk to people, and they're just... They're coming apart at the seams. They don't know what to do. They're unraveling. And Paul said this and also in the last days, this unraveling, these perilous times will come. And I thought, well, these must be those last days. But then the next verse says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. See, when God points to the signs of the last days, he doesn't say, oh, look at all those gangs out there on the street. Oh, look, there's more self. Uh, uh, self-same same marriage, you know, P- people are marrying the same gender. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, look at the econo- uh, economic situation. L- look at how religion is falling. Look at all these things. No, God says, people are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. We are a selfish age. How many selfies did you take this week? You know, I think we'd be surprised how many pictures on our phone are of ourselves. We're selfish. We love ourselves. 
Lucifer, back in heaven as an angel, had an eye problem. Now, Lucifer was a powerful angel. He's one of the three most powerful angels, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. Lucifer, according to Ezekiel 28, was in charge of the worship in heaven. He was in charge of the music. In fact, if you read Ezekiel 28 carefully, the workmanship of thy pipes was performed in the, in the day that thou was created. I believe that means that Lucifer, as an angel, had musical instruments as a part of his very being. In other words, when Lucifer uh, led worship, he didn't have to have somebody play the piano. He could create that music, that, that, that melody in himself. He was a musical person. He was a, a worshipful angel. But one day it says in Isaiah chapter 14, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also in the mount of the congregation of the sides of the north. I will rise above the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Five times, I, 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 I. He had an eye problem. By the way, the letter I is the middle letter in the name Lucifer. I is also the middle letter in the word pride. And pride is sin. Oh, there's I again, right in the middle of that word. I is the middle letter in the word lie. And when Lucifer did come to this world, what did he do to the first man and woman? He lied. He deceived. See, I is in the middle of everything. I is the middle letter of the word die. And the wages of sin is death. I is the middle letter in the word anxiety. It's just everywhere. <laughs> By the way, I is also the middle letter in the word revival. See, it's not that God wants to eliminate us in order to work. God just needs our old man, our old self to die. Isn't that what Paul was saying in Galatians 2.20? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, it's not that God wants to get us out of here so he can do his work. He just wants the old man to get out of here, the old selfish man to get out of the way so that he can work through us. But to do that, we, we, we got to have, the first thing we got to do every morning is have a funeral for self. First thing you got to do in the morning is dig a grave and let self fall in it. We got to die to self. In, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, when those readers at the Church of Rome read those words, they must have thought, What? A living sacrifice? What's Paul talking about? A living sacrifice. Because up until that time, every sacrifice that they knew anything about required death. In other words, the Old Testament, when you brought a, an animal and put it on an altar, you had to kill the animal, right? The lamb, at the Passover, they, they killed the lamb, they put it on the altar, and they offered it up as an offering to the Lord. If it was corn or wheat, they cut it down, they, they, they took the life from it, put it on the altar, and offered it up as a sacrifice. Every sacrifice had to die. 
But now Paul is talking about a living sacrifice. Well, how does that work? Well, we would understand today, God doesn't want us to commit suicide. He doesn't want us to be a martyr right now. He's saying, I want you to live for me. But you've got to be a living sacrifice. In other words, you've got to die to the old man. You've got to die to your agenda, to your desires, and in order to live for me. Now, the problem with a living sacrifice is it's always trying to crawl off the altar. Have you noticed that? Uh, I mean, that lamb, when they, when they killed that lamb, the blood was shed at the Passover, and they put that little lamb up on there in the altar, it wasn't going anywhere. When they lit the fire, that lamb wasn't, oh, it hurts, get me out of here. No, no, it was dead. It was a dead sacrifice. But you and I, when pastor preaches and we come forward or we make a decision, we say, Lord, okay, the Bible's right. I agree, i, I got to get this sin out of my life, or I, I need to start serving you in this area, or I need to take this step of obedience. Whatever it is that God speaks to our heart, and we put that on the altar, as it were, and we make that decision, guess what? Tomorrow morning it's going to go, uh, I want to get off the altar. I don't want to do this. I want out. And that's why Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. See, every day the eye's got to die. It's got to die. The self has to die. Self is a contaminant that will take the savor out of our salt. So we've got sin. That's obvious. Self, a little less obvious, something we don't like to deal with, but nevertheless we must if our salt is going to have savor. But then a third that might be a little more obscure, scars. Scars. The Christian life is described in the Bible as a battle. It's described as a warfare. Um, Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.10, fight the good fight of faith. In 2 Timothy 4, he said, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen to be a soldier. In Ephesians 6, we're told about the armor we're to put on. You know, I'm not planning today, any time today, to put on any shoulder pads, a helmet. No, I'm not planning on that. You know why? Because I'm not playing football today. Now, there are some people right now putting those things on. The Titans, the Kansas City Chiefs, they're probably already in their equipment because they're going to be playing here in a couple hours. They're, they're putting on some equipment. Why? Because they're going to play a football game. If I just sit on my couch and watch it, I don't need those things, right? I don't need any protection because I'm not in the game. But I would be pretty foolish to walk out there in the football field and say, okay, come on, bring it on. I don't need a helmet. <laughs> you know, it'd be pretty stupid, right? So God says, hey, we're in a warfare, and so we need this armor. We need to put this armor on. And you know, no matter how much armor you put on, there still are some injuries, There'll be some guys walking off that field today, as well protected as they are with that equipment, there's still going to be some injuries. There are going to be some guys that get nicked up. There are going to be some guys that get hurt. Some may not even be able to continue the game because of the severity of that injury. You know, in the Christian life, while God gives us some protection with the armor as we put it on, there are still some hurts. Has somebody ever said something to you that hurt? You know, little kids, they say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. 
Words have hurt all of us. In fact, Proverbs says death and life are in the power of the tongue. You can kill people by what you say. So words hurt. Sometimes people do things to us that, 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 that hurt us. We were injured. Now, what do we do with that? It's going to come. What do we do with it? If we don't deal with that injury properly, it leaves a scar. A scar of bitterness. A scar of anger. A scar of revenge. A scar of rebellion. And there are a lot of people today whose salt has lost its savor because they've never dealt with the injury properly. And as a result, they go through life with scars that are taking away their savoriness of their salt. You say, but Brother Gadge, I've been through some tough things, and it's not easy to forgive. It's not easy to just get over something. I understand that. But you know, the Bible has given us some wonderful examples. I think of Joseph. Joseph was hated by his brothers. Now, Joseph, as far as we can tell, had done nothing to agitate them, or he was given a coat of many colors, but that wasn't his doing. And his brothers hated him. I mean, so much so, they were going to kill him. Had Reuben not intervened, Joseph would have died. They were going to kill him. But because of Reuben's intervention, they, they ended up selling him as a slave. He ends up down in Egypt, which is a picture of sin. It's a picture of the world. He comes under Potiphar's reign, and Potiphar makes him, uh, 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 gives him a job, and Joseph does so well at it. He doesn't sit around and sulk or complain. or uh, He's not bitter. He, he, he aggressively pursues the task at hand, and he starts going up the ladder, so to speak, and then Potiphar's wife tries to sexually entice him in Genesis 39. But Joseph says, no, how shall I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And he, for several days, resists her temptation. Well, she gets frustrated, so she lies about him, tells her husband he raped her. And now he's thrown into prison, falsely charged, falsely accused, no trial, no judge, no jury. He's thrown in jail, and he's there for three years. Now, I've been in jail for about three hours to preach, but after about three hours, I'm ready to get out of there. Imagine being in prison for three years. But, but again, Joseph's not sulking, he's not complaining. In fact, he's doing so well, they're making him ruler in the prison. And, and he tells the, the, the baker and the butler, hey, when you guys get out, remember me. But you know what? They forget. He's forgotten for three years. But you know what? He never let those scars hurt his salt. He never let those things develop into an unsavoriness of his testimony. And eventually, God brings him out, makes him ruler over Egypt, delivers the nation of Israel. In the end, in Genesis 50, he says to his brothers who think now he's going to get his revenge on them, he says, no, no, I'm not in the place of God. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. See, he kept his salt savory. I think of Daniel. Daniel is ripped away from his family, taken into captivity to Babylon, they changed his name. They changed his diet. They, they tried to change everything about Daniel. Dan, Daniel, his life is ruined. He's never going to get married. He's never going to have children. Those things are physically impossible. He's under the prince of the eunuchs. You've got to think a little bit when you read your Bible. This man's life is ruined. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if I was 17 and my future's been taken away by wicked people, I'd be like, God, what's the deal? I was faithful. I was doing right. This is what I get. Thanks a lot. That's kind of where I'd be. But no, no, Daniel purposed in his heart. I mean, Daniel stays true to God. And again, God brings him up, makes him deliver. I, I I think of Paul and Silas. So oftentimes we joke about this, well, nobody's ever come up to me and said, what must I do to be saved? Well, have you ever thought about the context? Paul and Silas are preaching at Philippi. For preaching, they get arrested. They get thrown in prison, and 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 the jailer is charged to keep them safely. So he puts their feet in stocks. He beats their back until they're bloody. He now puts them in the inner prison, which I assume would be like a dark cell. There's no, no window outlet, nothing in there. So here they are in the middle of the night. Their backs are bleeding. Their feet are in stocks. They can't move. They can't give themselves any relief. And, and, and they're in a dark cell. They can't even see each other. Now, if I'm there, I'm complaining. I'm griping. I'm miserable. I don't want anything to do with anybody. But at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And watch this. And all the prisoners heard them. This wasn't the McDonald's prayer. Lord bless the food, amen. You know, you know. Hope nobody saw that. You know, no. Paul and Silas are praising God at midnight, and everybody's hearing them. And suddenly, there's a great earthquake, and immediately all the doors are open, and everyone's bands are loosed. And the keeper of the prison, he 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 pulls out his sword. Supposing all the prisoners have been fled, he's going to kill himself rather than be killed. And so he pulls out his sword, and Paul cries with a loud voice, "Do thyself no harm." We are all here. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible? We are all here. Now, i got to tell you something. If they open all the prisons in Arizona today, they ain't all going to be there, right? They're leaving. Not in that prison that night. They're all there. Now, again, I, I, maybe I'm wrong for reading between the lines, but I think they all had already gotten saved. Why else would they stay? And now that Philippian jailer calls for light. And he says, what must I do to be saved? You see, the reason that man wanted to get saved because Paul and Silas didn't lose their savor. In the midst of difficulty and trial, they were still salty. And of course, there's no greater example than Jesus himself. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he was threatened, he, when, he, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. What an example the Lord Jesus is of this. Now, the Bible says in our verse 13, if the salt have lost its savor, it is thenceforth good for nothing. That's a pretty strong statement. If I said, you three guys over here, you guys are good for nothing. You are absolutely good for nothing. Now, that'd be pretty derogatory. I got some parents right now going, well, that's yeah. my son over there. <laughs> right? I mean, if I called these boys good for nothing boys, that'd be pretty derogatory. That'd be pretty low. I mean, one of them's taking notes. They all got their Bible open. They're not bad kids. But if I said, these guys are good for nothing, that would be, that'd be a terrible statement. But folks, this isn't me saying it. This is God saying it. God says, if I have lost my savor, I'm good for nothing. He didn't say, oh, you, you, you could still preach maybe in the 
maybe in the jail or something. Just not in the church. I'll use you over there, but not here. No, God's saying, you're good for nothing. Well, I, I, maybe I could still I don't know, do some maintenance or sing in the choir. No, no, no. You're good for nothing. Oh. So what did they do with salt that lost its savor in Jesus' day? But to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. You know what they did with salt when it lost its savor in Jesus' day? They didn't put it on the fields. Because if you put salt on the fields, it's going to kill everything out there. Because it's still salt. And can I just say kindly, if we've got sin in our life, and we've got self in our life, and we've got scars in our life, and our salt has lost its savor, let's not go in the fields. Because the fields are white unto harvest. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians without salt are killing everything out there. What they did with salt when it lost its savor was they put it in the streets to be trodden under because it was good for nothing. And I think that was what Paul had in mind when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should get cast away. Now, we don't lose our salvation. Thank God for that. But we've lost our opportunity to make a difference. Would you keep a salt shaker on your table if the salt wasn't salty? No, you'd, you'd pitch it. You'd throw it out. You wouldn't use it for anything. It's good for nothing. What a challenge for our lives to be careful of the contaminations. And this week we have a chance to have some extra services here at Royal View and let God work a little deeper maybe in our lives and show us some of the sin or some of the self or some of the scars maybe that need to be dealt with in our life because we need to be salt that's savory this world so desperately needs jesus christ and we're the agents the salt and the light to make it possible for them to see him and that's our goal